the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Nearly 200 countries have developed various forms of biodiversity strategies, but the United States is not one of them. Worldwide, one million species are threatened with extinction, according to Defenders of Wildlife, Earth Justice, the World Wildlife Fund, and several other groups. Against that threat, those organizations say the United States must adopt an effective, whole-of-government approach to prevent the loss of species, the collapse of ecosystems, and the increasing threats these losses pose to our health, security, and well-being. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. What exactly would a national biodiversity strategy look like? What would it entail? How does it differ from efforts that have been ongoing for years? To explore those and other questions about biodiversity, we're joined today by Robert Dewey, the Vice President of Government Relations at Defenders of Wildlife, and Dr. Lindsay Rosa, who directs Defenders Center for Conservation Innovation. We'll be back in a minute with them to discuss what a national biodiversity strategy would look like. In addition to some of the best rates in the country, Interior Federal Credit Union gives back their members more than other financial institutions in the form of dividends and low or no fees. With higher dividend rates, you can earn more in all your accounts, like certificates, money markets, or even a checking account. They focus to make sure that their members aren't being nickel and dimed every time they make a transaction. That's the beauty of Interior Federal Credit Union. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Everglades Foundation the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Okay, we're discussing the call for a national biodiversity strategy with Robert Dewey, Vice President of Government Relations at Defenders of Wildlife, and Dr. Lindsay Rosa, who directs Defenders Center for Conservation Innovation. Welcome to The Traveler, Robert and Lindsay. Thank you, Kurt. Uh, thanks so much for having us. First off, let's talk broadly about extinction. Federal wildlife officials announced back in October that 22 animals and one plant should be declared officially extinct and removed from the endangered species list. Most of these species were likely extinct or nearly extinct by the time the Endangered Species Act was passed back in 1973, and therefore there was little hope that drastic conservation methods would be able to save them. That's an alarming number, and yet the worst could be yet to come we're looking at one million species threatened with extinction worldwide. Why so many? What's going on here? Yeah, Kurt, thanks. I, they are staggering numbers and the numbers go on. Over 40% of insect species threatened with extinction. In North America, three billion birds have been lost since 1970. And there's more of that. There are, uh, as have been described, five main drivers of biodiversity loss. Uh, that are focused on uh, mainly land and sea use change, uh, overexploitation of species, pollution, invasive species, and climate change. And all of these really, you know, on their own have a major impact on species and their survival. 
but together the synergies are continuing to put on these extra pressures. You know, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, just look what's happened in the national park system. We think, or at least we like to think, that national parks and their inhabitants, their wildlife, their flora and fauna are forever. But back in 1987, James Gleick wrote a piece in the New York Times under a headline that declared, species are vanishing from many national parks. In that article, he wrote that many species of mammals are disappearing from North America's national parks solely because the parks, even those covering hundreds of thousands of acres, are too small to support them. Parks as vast as Yosemite and Mount Rainier have lost more than one-fourth of the species originally found there, and smaller parks have lost as many as 35 to 40 percent. I mean, staggering numbers. I mean, we, we like to think about the national park system as, as, as a forever project, and yet we've, we've lost an astounding number of, of native species. And, and we have to keep this in perspective. I mean, you know, some parks, native species, you might have uh, 20 different species of mammals or, or, or fewer than that. But nevertheless, the, the percentage losses are, are, are staggering. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our national parks are, you know, they create this and, and continue to maintain this amazing habitat for our species. But, but some of, you know, the changes that are occurring um, are turning them, those that aren't already islands, into islands, which, you know, really degrades their potential for connecting habitats for species to continue to move. Uh, gopher tortoise in Fort Matanzas, for example, it needs large parcels of land, uh, undeveloped land, of course. Uh, roadkill is one of the major causes of death for adult tortoises, and we don't expect them to stay inside the National Monument. Uh, so now the species has experienced over uh, you know, 80% decline in populations over the last century, and their numbers are expected to continue to drop um, as habitat outside of the parks is degraded or fragmented. Uh, and that's just one example. Um, other things like pollution, I'm sure, as, as you know, 90% of America's national parks are plagued by significant air pollution problems. Uh, Sequoia National Park in California experiencing some of the worst of it and disappearance of endangered species like the mountain yellow-legged frog in these parks is linked to that pollution, to deposition of pesticides from the Central Valley. And it continues. So that's why we're, we're pushing for this national biodiversity strategy to really create a strategy that serves all species and an approach to bringing an end to the rising extinction rates. So, so, Robert, I'm wondering if you can outline or, or define exactly what a national biodiversity strategy is and what it would look like and, and how it might be applied across the country. Uh, yes. As you noted in your opening remarks, nearly 200 countries have some form of national biodiversity strategy. And we really think that uh, with the overwhelming evidence of a, a crisis for biodiversity in nature, the U.S. adopting a national biodiversity strategy is long overdue. I think the strategy is urgently needed for a number of reasons. One, I think the mere development of a strategy by the U.S. would give greater attention and focus and make addressing the biodiversity crisis a national priority and a national priority that it needs to be. You know, it's taken a long time for 
public and policymakers to understand and respond to the climate crisis. And that, that's, that is urgently needed, and there's still a lot of work to be done in that regard. But I would venture to guess that uh, public understanding and awareness of the climate crisis is significantly greater than uh, also a very compelling natural disaster, which is the biodiversity crisis. Uh, so making the biodiversity crisis and responding to it a national priority is one benefit of a national biodiversity strategy. But more specifically, as the name suggests, a national biodiversity strategy would identify actions and approaches the country should take to comprehensively address the leading drivers of the biodiversity crisis. And as, as Lindsay was outlining, really those are those five areas again, they are climate, uh, they are habitat loss and degradation, they are pollution, invasive species, and over-exploitation of wildlife. That the nation has uh, begun uh, under the current administration to take meaningful action on two of those drivers, climate and uh, habitat loss, uh, through promotion of uh, an initiative called 30 by 30. But there are really these three other drivers, pollution, invasive species, and over-exploitation, uh, that there are initiatives and programs scattered through the federal government, but I would say they're not well-coordinated. They're certainly not well-funded, and there certainly needs to be more attention to those drivers. In fact, I think there's strong evidence to indicate that those three drivers are actually greater contributors to the biodiversity crisis than the other two, than to climate and to habitat loss. So they are really significant issues. And I know, in fact, for national parks, that invasive species, as uh, I'm sure you know, Kurt, are, is a huge issue for national parks, for example. Yeah, it really is. We've been uh, running a months-long series on invasive species in the, in the parks, ranging from vegetation to mosquitoes to um, invasive uh, pythons down in uh, Everglades National Park. And it's a, a serious problem. And, and I hate to say it, but it's growing in, in some areas. I'm wondering, this is a national biodiversity strategy is all about ensuring that the U.S. government is going to take an effective whole of government approach to preventing species extinction and ecosystem collapse. How do you go about ensuring that happens? I mean, one of the problems with this, the way our country operates is every four years you could have a, a change in administration in, in Washington or a change in the, the makeup in Congress and a change in philosophy of what's important. So if the Biden administration passed a comprehensive national biodiversity strategy, how do you ensure that it remains in effect going forward no matter what political party controls the White House or controls the Congress? Sure, sure. Uh, just to kind of restate, um, you know, the idea of a national biodiversity strategy is really to create a whole of government blueprint to facilitate coordination among agencies, uh, to make them better utilize existing laws and authorities and programs that they have. Also, though, to encourage them to work more collaboratively with uh, states, uh, with tribes, with non-governmental organizations, and also to consider new approaches uh, to addressing these problems. And then finally, to identify funding needs to, to better make uh, the programs and laws that we now have work. Uh, for example, in the case of the Endangered Species Act, that act has been an incredible success. And yet 
it has been terribly underfunded. Uh, and while it's been highly effective in preventing extinction of species, it has been less effective because of funding in recovering species. And much more could be done if the act was, was funded. So I think our view about the future and the durability, if you will, of a national biodiversity strategy has, has several aspects to it. One, I think we believe that a biodiversity strategy should not just be announced by the federal government, uh, of course not, uh, as is, was the case for the process that led to the development of the uh, recent administration initiative, America the Beautiful. We believe that a national biodiversity strategy should be developed with an uh, inclusive and collaborative process uh, that engages people, it engages states, it engages citizens, engages tribes, uh, it engages uh, organizations in figuring out what needs to be done. Uh, again, developing a blueprint with significant input. And we believe that um, th this public input uh, and collaboration and development will contribute to its durability. The other is, I, I believe that it's just common sense. You know, I, I, I would be surprised that if people, people of different political persuasions would, uh, would are pro-extinction. I think everybody wants uh, to save uh, the basis of life on earth. And many, many of us believe in the intrinsic value of species uh, and the beauty of nature, uh, in addition to the practical benefits for people in terms of medicines and in terms of the economy. So I think the, um, the, the practical benefits will help contribute to the durability of a national biodiversity strategy. And regardless, it will always serve as a, a blueprint and recommendations uh, for what needs to be done. We can have debates over the degree to which these programs should be funded. We believe they need to be robustly funded, but we need to know what needs to be done to save biodiversity. Yeah, and certainly, as you mentioned, um, you need buy-in from top to bottom, and not just in Washington, but, uh, but across the states. And I, I think we're seeing some of that come to fruition. Um, here in Utah, um, public pressure, I think, led the, uh, the state to, to build a wildlife overpass over Interstate 80, um, just about five miles from where I'm sitting. And um, that has seen um, an incredible amount of wildlife cross that, that bridge. And in fact, it, it went viral when the, the state uh, put the video up. Um, people were just amazed at the, the mountain lions and the bobcats and the moose that were using that. And of course, more recently, we've seen the, um, the movement in California to, to build a wildlife overpass to enable mountain lions to move back and forth through different ecosystems and um, not get run over. Well, I would just add to that, uh, since, since you mentioned uh, connectivity and, um, and uh, 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 helping wildlife navigate highways and, and roads, uh, that, you know, in terms of uh, bipartisan support, we were pleased that the recently enacted infrastructure law does promote uh, wildlife crossings and has uh, a good amount of funding for that very purpose. So, you know, just, just to the point of uh, consensus and support for some actions that are critical to conserving wildlife populations and uh, actions that help address the biodiversity crisis, I think there is some encouraging evidence of that. Um, thanks, uh, Kurt, for pointing out in, in your home state there. Uh, but I'll just also supplement it by pointing out the infrastructure bill at the national level. 
We're talking today with uh, Robert Dewey, the Vice President of Government Relations at Defenders of Wildlife, and Dr. Lindsay Rosa, who directs Defenders Center for Conservation Innovation. The topic is a national biodiversity strategy. We'll be right back in a minute. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at BRPFoundation.org. Nova Scotia. 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit novascotia.com today and start planning your natural getaway. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. So when we talk about a national biodiversity strategy, obviously that implies that there are some holes in the current approach that we're taking across the country to ensure biodiversity thrives across the landscape. Can can you point to some of the biggest inconsistencies and gaps that we have with our current U.S. conservation policies? Sure. Uh, You know, first, I I think it's important to point out that the, the U.S. does have a collection of laws, policy, and programs that are, um, for many countries, the, uh, they're envy. Uh, you know, we have an Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, Marine Mammal Protection Act, and the, the, the long list goes on. And then, of course, national parks and many types of protected areas. So we have a good basis to work from, uh, and particularly with respect to the Endangered Species Act. However, um, you know, we believe that um, more could be done uh, with these laws to fully implement them. And I think what we really hope in terms of a national biodiversity strategy is that the focus is on the leading drivers of the biodiversity crisis. So when you look at uh, laws, policies, and programs that the federal government has and, uh, and states, tribes, and other conservation partners have that are directed at, at conserving wildlife, I think you really want to look at Uh, it through the lens of these uh, leading drivers of the biodiversity crisis and making sure that agencies have the direction to prioritize the utilization of these laws for wildlife and to address these leading drivers, that they talk amongst each other more effectively than they have in the past, perhaps, for example. 
and that they consider new approaches uh, because as good as the laws and programs and policies the nation has, certainly it's not perfect. And there certainly are areas for improvement or for implementation. And then last, of course, is funding. The point I made earlier is that the Endangered Species Act is a highly effective law, but it's fiscally starved. You know, we could do so much more as a nation to recover species that are listed under the Endangered Species Act with a relatively modest amount of additional funding. Dr. Rosa, we have hundreds of millions of acres across the public landscape and national parks, national forests, the BLM, Bureau of Land Management. And of course, there are um, many, many more acres in, in state public lands, state-owned lands. Does the National Park Service, because everybody seems to look up to it in this country, have a key role in advancing a national biodiversity strategy? I mean, people love the national park system. They love national parks. Can, can the Park Service serve a central role to, to ensuring a national biodiversity strategy moves forward? I think that there's certainly opportunity, yeah, for the national parks to, you know, serve as a, a, a key example for moving forward. And obviously, the National Park Service is an important uh, agency in making sure that this collaborative, integrative effort among the agencies moves forward. Uh, I, so obviously, national parks. National wildlife refuges are some of the key lands, public lands that we point to when we talk about protecting wildlife and the habitats. And really, I think that these can continue to be shining examples of ways to do that and communicating with these agencies and those that are managing lands for things other than conservation uh, and those missions are are part of, you know, making sure that the national strategy comes together in a mo- the most effective manner. There are pilot projects out there to collaboratively protect and recover in, in, endangered species, um, such as uh, Lee Spells Vireo in the Southwest. And this particular project uh, includes right now uh, Army Corps of Engineers, Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Reclamation, Military Services, um, Forest Service, and others uh, that were really working together to kind of maximize their efforts and develop a wide range recovery framework. Something like this serves to benefit, uh, obviously, other species as well, and I think can support each agency's capacity to meet its mission and the National Park Service and lands are an important part of this. Um, so excited to kind of see fruits of these kinds of efforts, but we need more of this going forward. And I think national parks are an important part of that. And uh, Kurt, Kurt uh, if I might, I might just add to that, that uh, in addition, you know, I think many of the listeners are probably familiar with the incredible success story that was the restoration of wolves to Yellowstone National Park. Uh, that has had benefits for the ecosystem of the park. It's had uh, economic benefits to the local communities uh, and national parks. In the case of Yellowstone, has been an incredible success story. Uh, we see that, of course, uh, with other jewels of the national park system. Uh, you're, you're, I know how well familiar you are with the Everglades 
the vast array of species down there and efforts to do more to uh, restore uh, the functioning of, of that ecosystem. So I guess my, my contribution to your question would be, is that, um, that, that national parks have a huge role and have uh, incredible habitat uh, and wildlife values and certainly can play a key role in a national biodiversity strategy. You know, I'm wondering, um, I, I've been doing this for, for quite a while, um, covering environmental issues and covering national parks. And back in the last century, um, there were some calls that we shouldn't put national parks under bell jars and, and keep it as it was in the 18th century or even the 19th century. And so I'm wondering, you know, earlier when I mentioned that some national parks had, had lost a, a quarter of their native animals, their faunal species, there's probably going to be some pushback against seeing grizzly bears return to uh, Yosemite National Park or Sequoia National Park. And then when you, you look at climate change and the invasion of invasive species in, in Everglades, which uh, the, the Burmese python has basically wiped out small mammals, the raccoons, the opossums, um, even some deer and, and you know bird species, they, they go after their eggs. I could go on and on, I guess. And I wonder what constitutes success of a national biodiversity strategy? Do we want to see all the native species return to their historic landscapes? Or how do you balance that? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I think that, you know, the vision here is, you know, small steps. First, we need to actually curb some of these extinction rates. We need to be able to support and ensure better uh, protections and conservation of those species that are listed. Uh, and, you know, I, I think from there, that's a, that's a pretty great starting point. Uh, obviously, we would love to see more done, uh, but I think that these are some of the key pieces that uh, the National Biodiversity Strategy is trying to address, addressing directly, you know, obviously the, the crisis at hand and uh, being able to make the progress to uh, ensure that, you know, our nation can continue to protect its natural legacy and remain a global leader in nature conservation. You know, the Biden administration clearly is on board with conservation and climate issues. You know, case in point, uh, Robert, you mentioned the 30 by 30 plan, national goal to conserve 30% of the Earth's land and sea areas by 2030, at least here in the United States. Does the, um, the national biodiversity strategy tie into that plan and the steps needed um, to see biodiversity strategy succeed? Yes, most definitely it does. Um, I think that the so-called 30 by 30 initiative, which for the Biden administration is embodied in an initiative they call America the Beautiful, uh, is uh, a central part of a biodiversity strategy. Uh, it is really addressing two of the drivers, particularly the driver of habitat degradation and, uh, and uh, uh, development. And so it, it focuses on the habitat driver of the biodiversity crisis. It also uh, focuses on the uh, climate and land use aspects uh, as well as another driver. Uh, so it can be a really important uh, building block. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the relationship 
uh, goes on because, you know, for the Biden administration and for all of us, uh, equitable access to nature is an important concept and making sure populations uh, that maybe have had less access to nature uh, have that opportunity. At the same time, I, I think with uh, a national biodiversity strategy, uh, that is, of course, by definition, focused on wildlife and making sure that we address, um, you know, kind of the, the root causes of, of, of the biodiversity crisis. And so when you look at it that through that lens, you want to make sure that uh, the 30 by 30 initiative really lives up to its original vision, which was to have sufficient protected habitat to uh, help address the biodiversity crisis. Uh, and there are a lot of very important goals that the administration has identified for 30 by 30. We wanna make sure that protected areas really do serve the purpose of conserving biodiversity. There are other purposes that should be served, but we wanna make sure that doesn't get lost or excessively diluted uh, as the nation pursues this critical goal of protecting additional areas for biodiversity. And then I guess just the last comment I made, uh, harkening back to an earlier point, is that as important as 30 by 30 is to the National Biodiversity Strategy, uh, it uh, addresses two important but, but uh, drivers of the biodiversity crisis, uh, but leaves out uh, three other drivers that collectively are huge contributors to the biodiversity uh, crisis overall. Obviously, there is this uh, effort in the House of Representatives led by Representative Joe Naguz from uh, Colorado um, to encourage the administration to develop a national biodiversity strategy. Representative Naguz has introduced a, a resolution uh, and he's also led an effort by House members uh, to talk to the administration about the need for a national biodiversity strategy. In fact, some 50 members of the House have joined him in a communication to, to uh, the president on this subject. At the state level, there are probably four or five resolutions uh, uh, calling on President Biden to develop a national biodiversity strategy. Those uh, have been introduced or uh, will soon be introduced or are advancing in New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Washington State. We believe there will be one in Hawaii. And those are some of the leading states. So um, there is a lot, of, lot going on amongst elected, elected officials to promote this issue to the president. And Dr. Rosa, what about the creeping rise of extinction denial? I've heard that there's been a concerted effort to deny that there has been an increase in species extinctions. This effort has spread from fringe blogs to influential media outlets on the, the right-wing side of politics. And it's even been brought up in a congressional hearing. Is that still an issue out there? Or, or is there a general acceptance that uh, species extinction is a serious problem we need to face? You know, certainly on the scientist side of things, there's, there's kind of nothing to uh, dispute here. Uh, I think the biodiversity crisis is very much something that is, is recognized. Um, and I, I think that, you know, as Robert has been saying pretty clearly, it's not a, a partisan issue. I think that this is something that we're all very deeply connected to. And that's something that's kind of 
undeniable is that, you know, we, we rely on our nature and our species. Uh, and it's, it's obvious that, that they're relying on us to do something. And so that's the reason why we need to act on a national biodiversity strategy. We're talking today about species extinction and the need for a national biodiversity strategy. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Wild Tribute is lifestyle apparel founded for our parks and public lands. We donate 4% of our proceeds to support America's most wild and historic places. This is our Wild Tribute. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. You can learn more at wildtribute.com. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Okay, we're back today talking with Robert Dewey, the Vice President of Government Relations at Defenders of Wildlife, and Dr. Lindsay Rosa, who directs Defenders Center for Conservation Innovation. You know, over the past five years, the Environmental Protection Agency has been vilified in some political circles. During the Trump administration, we saw rollbacks of clean air and carbon emission regulations. They were commonplace. On top of that, two EPA directors had interests inconsistent with what's best for the environment. I think we could all agree. One was an attorney representing the fossil fuel and chemical industries. Another was a former attorney general from Oklahoma who consistently sued the EPA on behalf of his oil and gas clients. Those appointments and their subsequent policies forced many EPA scientists and other staff to resign on principle. So the question is, how important is the Environmental Protection Agency to this national biodiversity strategy, and will the effort help restore the clout and reputation of the EPA? Well, I would say that uh, EPA is critically important to a national biodiversity strategy. Of course, conserving and maintaining water quality, air quality, to some extent we've already uh, talked about that a little bit, is is critical uh, to conserving natural processes, maintaining natural processes, and basically the uh, ecosystem functioning. Uh, So EPA is a critical player. You're absolutely right that under the previous administration, that agency was undercut, laws were undermined, progress was not made. Uh, And I might uh, venture to say that that is the same situation that occurred the Department of the Interior and particularly for programs that are administered by the Fish and Wildlife Service. We saw the weakening of the administratively of the Endangered Species Act, weakening of the Migratory Bird Protection Act, efforts uh, to step up uh, drilling in sensitive habitats such as the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, uh, and the list goes on. You know, I think what we see here Uh, is that in 2019, this international report that was really a landmark study uh, identifying uh, the the crisis 
of uh, Biodiversity Loss was issued. It has a very long title, The Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. That certainly is a mouthful. Uh, those of us know and love it as the IPIS report, uh, IPIS assessment uh, more, more accurately. Uh, and it was issued at a time when we were headed in the wrong direction as a nation. As we were saying, as you pointed out with the EPA and certainly with the Interior Department and the Fish and Wildlife Service, we were weakening protections that are critical to maintaining biodiversity, wildlife and nature. Uh, and now we see a real opportunity with the current administration that we believe is committed to science, is committed to climate change, and is committed to making progress on these issues. So, you know, I think that we see an opportunity to advance a national biodiversity s- strategy uh, under the current political climate. So I'm curious, um, where do we go from here? I know um, some members of Congress earlier this year called on the Biden administration to establish a national biodiversity strategy. Where does that effort stand and and is the administration listening? You know, we're excited uh, by the the, the momentum of the campaign to establish uh, a national biodiversity strategy. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, uh, this can be done, uh, the establishment of a national, development of a national biodiversity strategy by President Biden with a stroke of the pen to announce plans to develop a national biodiversity strategy. What it really just takes is leadership to initiate this uh, national biodiversity strategy. Uh, And we've seen good leadership from this administration on a variety of environmental fronts. We've talked about climate. uh, You know, we've we've talked about uh, 30 by 30 and other initiatives. So, uh, you know, good progress has been made, but but, uh, we have not yet achieved a national biodiversity strategy being uh, announced and undertaken. Uh, but we believe our campaign is making good progress. You know, as you as you pointed out uh, recently, 50 members of Congress have called on the administration uh, to develop uh, a national biodiversity strategy. Uh, there is a resolution, House Resolution 69, pending in the House of Representatives, calling for the establishment of a national biodiversity strategy. And at the state level, state legislators are hearing uh, and appreciating the need for a national biodiversity strategy and taking action. There are state resolutions calling on the administration to develop a national biodiversity strategy. Uh, I believe there's at least four or five of them that I, I know of that are either have been introduced, will be shortly introduced, or actually have advanced. It's not only Defenders of Wildlife in terms of groups calling for a national biodiversity strategy. Uh, there are some 120 groups or more that are that are calling for this. Uh, I think uh, Lindsay pointed out earlier, leading scientists uh, are on record as calling for a national biodiversity strategy. And there's even a um, student letter, a national student letter that I'm aware of calling on President Biden to establish a national biodiversity strategy. So there hasn't been one announced yet, uh, but we feel like uh, there is growing awareness of the problem of uh, biodiversity crisis and the need to address it through a national biodiversity strategy. Uh, So uh, I think we're hopeful. And in fact, uh, there is an early opportunity for the administration to do so that we're really hoping they will capitalize on, which is the upcoming meeting of the parties to the Convention on Biodiversity. This is uh, the Convention on Biodiversity 
is a uh, international agreement that nearly 200 countries around the world have signed on to. Sadly, the U.S. is not a party to this agreement. We think that it should be, but uh, the plain fact that it is not. However, that doesn't mean that the U.S. can't demonstrate leadership as it has historically on efforts to conserve biodiversity. And there is no better way to reestablish to the world U.S. leadership on biodiversity conservation than to announce that we are going to get our house in order and uh, lead by developing a national biodiversity strategy. And with that international meeting occurring this summer, we think that this would be a wonderful time for President Biden to announce plans for the U.S. to develop a national biodiversity strategy. You know, I'm curious, as um, that New York Times article pointed out back in 1987, even some of our biggest parks aren't big enough to ensure biodiversity. I mean, we've heard back in the 90s, if not the 80s, about the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative to enable wildlife, um, you know, grizzly bears and wolves and, and elk and caribou to, to move up and down so we don't have biological islands. I think, is there a concern that, you know, when we talk about a national biodiversity policy, a national biodiversity strategy, that there isn't enough lands, enough public lands in in the federal kingdom, so to speak, you know, the national parks and the national forests. And so we need to expand across state lands, perhaps, um, to ensure that there are those corridors out there. And is the general public going to going to embrace that? Or are they going to be concerned about you're going to, you're going to take my lands through eminent domain for this strategy? Or, you know, we're going to see grizzly bears and wolves on our landscape again, and we don't want to see that. Sure. I, I think that that is some of the concern and, and conversation that we've seen a little bit with the current administration's uh, directive on, on 30 by 30. Uh, in terms of uh, public lands, you know, already, um, you know, almost a third of the U.S. is in public land, uh, obviously not all of it being uh, managed in ways that are consistent or align with conservation and some of these issues that you bring up, like the need for corridors and movement. And really, again, a, lo a lot of that land is focused on the West, so we're not maximizing uh, really biodiversity conservation, given that a lot of species only occur in, you know, Midwest and Eastern portions of the U.S. So I, I think that, uh, yeah, that's part of the reason why this approach, this national strategy really needs to be whole of government, not just the federal agencies, but tribes, states, everyone really needs to come together to make this happen, to make this an effective strategy and also to, you know, ad really address effectively the, the biodiversity crisis, not only for now, but given climate change, we're going to need some areas that are, you know, considered climate refugia or corridors that allow for that movement to happen, uh, given that that is what we are facing. You know, I think there's a good example up in uh, Montana that you're probably both aware of, the American Prairie Reserve and the efforts that are underway there to restore a key ecosystem that once existed across much of the, the northern tier in the Midwest, um, and they're bringing back bison and, and all the species that um, 
relied on bison, uh, so to speak, in terms of you know the the um, the prairie dogs and, and a lot of the the bird life that um, benefited from the landscape as as bison um, landscaped that landscape, if you will. Is that a good example that could be replicated elsewhere on public lands? Do you think, or on private lands even? I think so. I think we need that collaborative effort and. Uh, yes, we, we focus sometimes on these these bigger species, but you know, in a lot of a lot of times that that it also ends up benefiting benefiting others. Uh, we really have so much to conserve for the sake of our national and global communities. I think you know that is one good example. The U.S. has species that are found nowhere else: the Gunnison sage grouse on Curacante red cockaded woodpecker and big cypress and, uh, you know, kind of a stone's throw from me, the even the tiny haze spring amphipod uh, endangered in Rock Creek Park. Can't, can't help but uh, give a shout out to the little guys too. And so these are, you know, some of those examples. Uh, and uh, again, more of the reason why we need to have collaborative long-term efforts through this national biodiversity strategy. I'm curious, you mentioned all the organizations that are behind this push. Is there going to be a national public awareness campaign, so to speak, about the the importance of species and, and the threat of species extinction and what this national biodiversity strategy can do? Yes, I, uh, that, that is the intent. Um, you know, we are working to highlight the problem. Uh, I mentioned this uh, <laughs> Uh, international report with a very long title that we refer to as, as the IPIS report it was, it was issued three years ago, and it was uh, fortunately at the wrong time politically to actually be able to make gains. Uh, but we are, uh, as an organization and with uh, many of the partner organizations, very intent on working uh, uh, to elevate the biodiversity crisis and increase awareness about the risk to a million species the importance of preventing ecosystem collapse for the benefit of human health uh, and for the benefit of our economy. You know, I think the, uh, the, the situation with, with COVID and the pandemics just underscores why we need to uh, address threats from, uh, you know, uh, habitat loss that brings uh, animals into closer contact with people uh, worldwide, particularly the international wildlife, live animal markets. Uh, these problems uh, are all related to the biodiversity crisis and really are important for us to address for our own uh, health and well-being, apart from the intrinsic benefits uh, of nature to people. So, um, you know, we, we really see this is a great opportunity and we are planning to highlight these problems. Uh, some of that information is on a uh, collaborative website that environmental groups promoting a national biodiversity strategy have developed. Uh, that site is called uh, onemillionspecies.org uh, and has lots of good information on it. It's not branded by any particular organization. It is really intended to provide educational resources about uh, national biodiversity strategy and the problem facing the biodiversity crisis facing uh, wildlife here in the U.S. and worldwide. Well, Robert and Lindsay, I appreciate your time today. It's a, a fascinating issue that um, the National Parks Traveler has long followed in, in recent years. And um, 
certainly um, anxious to see how it moves forward through the administration and out there on uh, the rest of the United States. Thanks for your time today. Kurt, thanks so much for, for having us on today. We really appreciate it. Yes, thanks, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Combating species extinctions and enhancing biodiversity requires much on-the-ground work to restore ecosystems. Next week, we'll be talking to Dr. Jerry Lorenz, who heads Audubon's Everglades Science Center, about the final steps being taken to mitigate the negative effects canals that were cut across the Cape Sable area of Everglades National Park back in the 1930s have had on the landscape there. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.